0: Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go through the New York Museum of Modern Art, and I was told that this you know, could take several days if you really wanted to look at all the pieces. Uh, I think I went through that museum in about 45 minutes. Now, that may be because I don't understand art. I'm willing to acknowledge that. <clears throat> but I have to confess, sometimes modern art just doesn't speak to me. And I'm amazed at the value that people put on things. For instance, a man, a painter, an American painter by the name of Jackson Pollock, who died in a car crash at the age of 44, had made some paintings. One of the last paintings he made was an eight foot wide by four feet high rectangle. And it was, uh, he's he's an impressionist. He's an abstract painter. And so it just looked like different colors All over this large poster board, it looked more like a bird's nest up close, and the thing sold for $140 million. I don't get it. Well, then there's this painting, believe it or not, this is true, called Non-Existent Art. Oh, I wish I could have got in on this deal. There's actually a museum for it, and uh, the people involved in this art like to call it non-visible art. Think about the king with no clothes. And so you'll actually see a frame. One was called Fresh Air, and there's nothing in the frame, and it sold for $10,000. And then on eBay recently, someone said, I know the meaning of life, and I'm willing to sell it, and it sold for (laughs) $3.26. I don't, of course, I... We don't know what the guy said was the meaning of life, nor the buyer, once they paid for this meaning of life, didn't disclose the meaning of life to the rest of us. Apparently, we've got to pay our three bucks as well. I don't get how people value some things as being so important and then sometimes important things as being so useless. But when you think about it, you and I often value many things greater than we do the eternal souls of men including our own and there's a story from the new testament where jesus kind of puts everything into perspective if you have your bibles let me invite you to turn to mark chapter five mark chapter five we continue our study on mark looking at the life of christ called simply jesus and we want to see everything from the perspective of the son of god The Son of God, who became a man and lived a perfect life and died for us on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, and now is ever interceding for us. We want to see all of life through King Jesus. And so we read in verse 1, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit or an impure, unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Let's stop right there. We have to go back uh, into chapter 4 to find out what was happening prior to this very important story, and it's the story of Jesus crossing the sea, the lake of Galilee, with the disciples. There's another time where Jesus was walking on the water, but this time he's in the boat. And a huge storm comes up, and it threatens to come over the boat and swamp the boat, and Jesus is sleeping. And they said, don't you care if we drown? And he gets up and says, be quiet, and everything's quiet. And The disciples are shocked, and they're saying, who is this who has power even over the seas? And then they landed on the shore. This little map gives us an idea of uh, the the territory around the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias. Uh, uh, They probably were coming from Capernaum that night in chapter 4 and ran into this huge storm on their way to the land of the Gerasenes, or Girgashah, as it's sometimes called. So we're, we're traveling to the east side from kind of the northwest side. The lake is about 14 miles long and roughly seven to eight miles wide depending on where you're measuring it. But if you look closely at this map, you'll notice that the gray area uh, actually was showing a valley and then you've got high hills around it. Sea of Galilee is 650 feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea, just to its west. Now here's a picture that gives you some sense of those mountains that come quickly down to the lake. By the way, the Sea of Galilee is about the size of Houghton Lake. Here's another picture, again, showing the topography of the area with these steep mountains coming down. And this is why squalls are so common on the sea. They can happen quite quickly. The wind will come down, rush down into this valley, and stir up the waters. And again, another beautiful picture Uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and this last picture is probably looking over toward the region of the Gerasenes. By the way, the Jews lived on the west side, but on the east side was the land of the Gentiles. And often in the scripture, when it says they went to the other side, they're referring to going over to that Gentile side, the side that's on the east. And so this artist's depiction of what it might have looked like in the boat that night when they were almost swamped, I think, is an excellent picture. A little boat, several guys in it, and waves in the Sea of Galilee have been measured, I'm told, up to 10 feet high, which is pretty astounding in such a little lake. And with less mass in which to kind of even out the lake, it just churns up even more and more. So the disciples are glad they got to the other side, And the fear that they experienced that night has now subsided until a new fear comes. It's the fear of a crazy man who meets them and comes rushing toward them. And in this story of the Gadarene demoniac, as we sometimes call it, the man who had a demon from the land of the Gerasenes, In this story, we see a picture of the mighty power of Jesus Christ. He revealed his power over the sea, over creation. Now he's going to reveal his power even over the evil, demonic world. We see his power over the storm, and now his power even over the spirits. And the first thing I'm impressed with as I read this story is one word, misery. Misery. The madman from the tombs was living a miserable existence. Let's look at it. The scripture says that uh, a man with an impure spirit, by the way, the Bible doesn't actually say that man is demon-possessed. A better word would be demonized. And the difference is influence as opposed to totally filling a person's body or personality. Now, I'm not denying that uh, demons could come in and be in a person, and if there's any case of it happening, it's here. But just actually reading the Scripture, the emphasis is on an unclean spirit, what the spirit produces. We're living in a day where a lot of people don't want to recognize that there is a spiritual world with a lot of power, and in that spiritual world, an evil world. In fact, the painful reality is that many Christians, professing Christians, don't want to acknowledge stories like this as they're given, but try to explain them away. They endeavor to achieve or to attribute uh, the situation to natural causes. For instance, in this case, they say the man was just a lunatic, not filled with the devil, Or they say perhaps he had epilepsy. Or they'll even say Jesus knew he wasn't filled with a demon, but Jesus wanted to use the words that were popularly used in that day so that they would understand. So Jesus said he is demonized when he knew he really wasn't, but he was just saying it. And I think all of those explanations are really weak and do harm to our authority of the Scripture, our view of God's Word being accurate and true. Now the man was demonized, heavily influenced, and even maybe, yes, filled with the demon. And there's much that we don't understand about this, but when you study the Scriptures, you understand that there is this battle with darkness. Paul said we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the rulers of this dark world. And so while there is only one devil, there appears to be many demons, and we attribute usually their creation, their existence, to the good angels who fell with the devil when they rebelled against the perfect will of God. Now I see two extremes with this whole idea of demonism. On the one hand, we become obsessed by it. On the other hand, totally deny it. It was C.S. Lewis who said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about demons. One is to believe in their existence, or excuse me, one is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased with both errors because they don't care if you believe in them too much or not at all as long as you don't take a proper view. Lewis said, they hail both errors, the materialist and the magician, with with the same delight. In other words, it's possible for us to have a fixation about demons or to totally reject them and show no interest. And both positions are far from the truth of Scripture. So the testimony of the sacred writings to the existence of these spiritual beings whose plan and design for you is only misery and death. Scripture abundantly talks about them everywhere. But we should never go beyond what the Scripture says, which means there's a whole lot of mystery, and there's a whole lot of questions. So as you study the scriptures, try to embrace that biblical balance. And a story like this, I think, goes a long way toward helping us be balanced. The whole purpose that a demon has for influencing you, the whole purpose that the devil has toward persuading you into his way of life is to destroy you and in the process to make you amazingly miserable. Now, granted, this is an extreme case. And we don't see cases quite like this in America as much as they do in many other lands. But, you know, the devil can change his tactics. In a place like America, it's probably more effective to make his servants like ministers of light and angels of righteousness. Read 2 Corinthians 11. The devil sends his servants masquerading as true ministers of the truth. So back to our story. Here's this miserable guy. Notice he is filled or influenced, demonized by an impure spirit, and the spirit has him living in the tombs. Now I don't know when this story took place. It's interesting when you study the scholars, they're uh, kind of divided. Some say that it was the night when they came through the storm in chapter 4 and they landed in the early morning, while others say, no, it was still night when they landed. And if that's the case, it makes the story even more eerie because here's a madman coming from a graveyard in the middle of the night. I don't know about you, but things just seem a little more creepy at night than they do in the day. And frankly, although I don't have any particular fear of walking through graveyards, I don't make it a habit of doing it at night. It's kind of a creepy situation. It's a perilous hour in a perilous place with a perilous man. And the disciples are once again, I'm sure, filled with fear. The fact that this man is controlled by an impure spirit implies that there is more of the spirit controlling his actions than there is of his own personality. But there's a sense of duality. There's a sense in which this man seems to have a, a multiple personality as Jesus talks with him and interviews him. If you were to visit Israel today, you would notice on this side of the Sea of Galilee that there's a lot of limestone and natural caves These tombs, or caves, are still visible today. And as you drive around the little road that goes around the sea, they'll stop at one space, one place, and say, notice the caves, and this is where Mark chapter 5 took place. The people believed in that day that demons dwelt in the woods, in desolate and lonely places, in graveyards. That's why they wouldn't go out at night. Uh, They had a fear of night as well. They wouldn't go out with a lantern or a torch. And sometimes they wouldn't even greet someone at night if they were out walking for fear that that person could be a demon coming toward them. There are all kinds of phobias, just like there are in our world today. The Bible tells us in verse 3, look at verse 3, this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, which means they'd been trying. This guy had been incarcerated and chained, but he had supernatural strength. There were chains on his hands, verse 4, and chains on his feet, often. But he had this unusual strength to break them. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Interesting thing about evil spirits, they usually want something to inhabit A person, an animal, um, a place. And when they do, sometimes there is unusual strength that can be shown, like in this situation. The guy was uncontrollable, and yet he still was a slave. No one could control him, but he was controlled by an evil spirit. He was a slave. And in this, we notice the cruel power of Satan. By the way, this story is also seen in Matthew's gospel where he says there were two guys, although Luke, uh, Mark and Luke only focus on one. Luke talks about the fact uh, that they were in torment and this guy had ripped off his clothes and the demon had sent him out into the tomb so he's living alone, naked, and not in his right mind. How cruel the power of Satan. We're told in Revelation chapter nine and verse 11 that another name for Satan is Apollyon, which means destroyer. Now you say, well, so far so good. You're talking about an extreme case and I feel pretty good about this. What you don't realize is that the devil is doing his best to influence you too. And although he may not possess you to this kind of extreme, Every person born into the world is under his kingdom and under his influence. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this world, and we are born, it says in Ephesians 2, as children of disobedience under his rule. Oh, he's got his influence. And he doesn't appear with a pitchfork and horns. He probably loves that depiction, by the way, because it's kind of comical. And as long as you can laugh about him, he's got you. No, he's much more subtle than that. And and it may may not be possession, but it is strong influence. And he's got a lot of people in this world doing his bidding when they think they're doing exactly what they want to do. And they don't know they are in bondage. But they see it by things that they cannot control. Behavior that they cannot curb. Language. Language that they cannot change. Someone has said that each one of us needs to make sure that we pray every day what we were taught to pray in the Lord's prayer. Lord, deliver us from the evil one. That's a good prayer. For the evil one has power, and he can trip us up as well. Now you notice the scripture says, verse 5, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, He would howl like a wolf with a shriek and a cry. Now, I guarantee you I'm not going into a cemetery in the middle of the night if I hear that kind of thing. And he would cut himself with sharp stones. Why? Probably to get rid of the demons. Did you know that cutting has become very popular among a lot of young people who are doing their best to cope with a wicked world and their own insecurity and their own faults? Cutting? I don't get it. But that doesn't mean it isn't happening. And here it was, this man trying to deal with the situation. And when he speaks, this is what's eerie, sometimes he speaks in the singular and sometimes He speaks in the plural, because sometimes he tries to speak for himself, and sometimes it's the evil spirit who speaks for him. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, Jesus beached the boat along with the disciples. They got onto the shore. This man ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him previously, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? So get the picture. This guy sees Jesus on the shore with the disciples, and he goes running after him. Now what do you do if a crazy man is charging you? A man that no one can control. Who is making noises no one can understand. Who's not dressed. And he falls in front of Jesus. I think the man was drawn to Christ because maybe he had heard something about the Savior, and maybe there was a hope in his heart that he could be released. And while the disciples were terrified, I'm convinced that Jesus braved braved the storm just to see this guy. Maybe the storm was the devil's doing to get rid of Jesus, but he wasn't bothered, he was sleeping. And now he's here. And he says, come out of him, which, by the way, is very similar wording to what he said to the sea earlier in the night. Be calm, be still, come out, be done. He gave a command to the spirit that was controlling the guy. And here is this weird conversation. What is your name? My name is Many. Many. And I don't know if the voice had a different tone to it. And if I was one of the disciples, I'd already be back in the boat. I'll take the storm. Jesus said, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion. Wow, that's an interesting name, Legion. A Roman regiment had 6,000 men in it, along with horsemen, the advanced troops, the cavalry, and technical personnel. It was a well-organized machine. And he said, my name is many. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, that doesn't mean that there are 6,000 demons. It means he's got a lot of demons. It means that maybe this guy saw the Roman troops that were occupying the land. And by the way, those troops were lawless, Those troops were wild and committed unspeakable atrocities, raping women whenever they wanted to, abusing people whenever they wanted to, confiscating possessions whenever they wanted to. They occupied the land. My name is Legion, because just like the Roman soldiers, there are many inside of me who occupy the land, and I cannot do what I want to do. In fact, maybe this guy had been abused by Roman soldiers. We don't know how he became demon-possessed, whether it was his sin that opened himself up or some horrible situation where, again, he opened himself up to evil spirits. My name is Legion. The tradition was that if you could get the name of a demon, you would have the power over that demon. Jesus wasn't concerned about that. He's concerned with dealing with the problem. Remember, he's already given a command, come out! And now he's investigating the situation. Wouldn't it be horrible to be under the control of an evil spirit? Well, it's, horrible to be under the influence of Satan so that you are doing things that you don't want to do and you've got many hang-ups that you cannot break and you are a slave to your own sin and that's exactly where the devil wants you to be. You need Jesus to speak grace and peace to you. And so if the first word for this story is misery, the second word for this story is authority for the madman meets the godman. Jesus comes. He's called the Most High God. By the way, isn't it interesting that whenever the demons meet Jesus, they seem to know who he is? In fact, they have better theology than a lot of church people. You're the one from the Most High. I know who you are, and that's right. He is the Son of the Most High. Come to earth. And of course, when he said, my lame name is Legion, for we are many, then he began to beg him. You know, don't torment us. Don't get rid of us, he begged. Don't send us out of the tombs. Don't send us from this area. This is our home. This is where we live. This is where we long to be. You see, Jesus had commanded that the evil spirit leave the man and they had no choice. But they were pleading with another place to live. Don't let us go from this region. I find it interesting that when desperation meets deliverance, Jesus always wins. His amazing power and authority are revealed. He speaks, and he's got power over creation. He speaks again, and demons flee. Now, this whole negotiation with the demon is a a rather interesting thing. We think to ourselves that, you know, perhaps Jesus is unable to get rid of the demon, but that is not the case. They're just pleading for a lesser sentence. They know his authority. Remember in chapter 1 when the demon-possessed person came into the worship service? And he began to shriek, and Jesus said to him, Come out! Same idea. And immediately the demon came out, and the people said, What is this? What kind of authority or new teaching does this guy have that the scribes and Pharisees didn't have. And Mark 1:27 says, We're amazed. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. That's the authority of the risen Christ. One mightier than Satan is here. And one of the problems I have with people who are always concerned about demons is that they always think that somehow the demons are in control. They always think that somehow the demons are winning the battle. They're everywhere. But in 1 John chapter 4, we read these comforting words: greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we must remember that Jesus Christ always wins. He has the authority over all creation. He's the sovereign God, He's the King of the universe. One mightier than Satan is here. And so they negotiated the situation. The Bible tells us that there was, not too far away, a herd of pigs, about 2,000 of them. And so the plan was then that maybe the demons can go into the pigs. We need a place to be. We, We don't know why, but somehow these demons want some type of host, some place to dwell. And so... They said, what about the pigs? And Jesus said, sure. Go into the pigs. Very interesting response. And then the Bible tells us that as soon as the demons went into the pigs, the pigs rushed down the cliff cliff and into the Sea of Galilee. Now here's some pictures of of that uh, very area, uh, the cliff area. Actually, this is... uh, a painting of what might have happened with the story. Let's go back just a little bit. The, the cliff pictures here are taken of the most natural sight, a cliff that runs straight down into the lake. And by the way, the original language speaks about pig after pig after pig going in. This would have taken a little, little bit of time for 2,000 pigs to go in to the sea. And right away, someone shouts, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not right. Why would Jesus harm animals? I mean, you can't say no animals were harmed in the telling of this story. But the point is, there are several things to consider. First of all, it's very possible that it was a Jew who had this business on the Gentile side of the lake, clearly against the law that forbids dealing with pork. Or it could simply be that Jesus is saying to us, you know, there's more value in a human being, one human being, than there is in thousands of animals. Or it could be that the story is telling us that Satan doesn't care whether it's a person or a pig. He just wants to destroy things. Now, I don't think the demons knew what was going to happen to them. I think they were looking for peaceful grazing near their tombs. And they ended up going down into the abyss, which is the very thing, according to Luke, that they said, don't torment us. Don't send us down to the pit before our time. Don't judge us. And Jesus said, you want to go in the pigs? Go in the pigs. And the pigs freaked out, and then they were gone. But that's not the most amazing thing about the story. I think one of the most amazing things about the story is that Those who were tending the pigs, look at verse 14. Those who were tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside to the people to tell them what had happened. Now, if you were a pig herder in charge of 2,000 pigs and you lost them all, don't you think your job would be in jeopardy? And they went back to say, hey, we didn't do it. There's this guy out there. And the owners were probably some of the first of the curious crowd to come back. They'd lost their business. This was pretty lucrative. Now the whole economy has been shaken. And the people come out. And when they came to Jesus, verse 15, they saw the man who was possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed before he was naked. And in his right mind before he was demonized and acting like a crazy man and they were afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of Jesus and his power. Afraid of what had just happened. Afraid of the status quo being changed. Did you know that Jesus is not only a threat to demons, he's a threat to the American dream. He's a threat to the materialistic crowd. He's A threat to anyone who values something is more important than a soul. They saw this guy sitting there in his right mind and they were afraid. So those who had seen it, they told the people what had happened. And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. Verse 17. Jesus, would you please go? Interesting. Now the people are begging And the thing I notice now is maybe the key word is hostility. The people were hostile. The people were unwelcoming to Jesus. The people weren't concerned that a man had now been transformed and a soul rescued. They were more concerned about their business, which simply leads me to the question, what do you value most, pigs or people? People. What do you value more than a living soul? Well, Jesus was convinced that it was all worthwhile. And by the way, the interesting thing about this is when they said, to Jesus leave? He got into the boat, verse 18, and he left. Because if you tell Jesus to leave, he's going to leave. Now, sometimes in his mercy and grace, he'll ask again and he'll persevere. But there is a day when you say, leave, and he's gone. In fact, the only way that you can miss the great mercy and grace of God is if you tell him, I don't want it. Leave my life. Stop bothering me. Don't change the status quo. And then we notice verse 18, the man who had been demonized begged Jesus to go with him. Can I go with you? And Jesus didn't let him, but said, no, you go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Isn't it interesting? Jesus Jesus usually said, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. That has been his mantra all the way up until now, but now the gospel is going to the east side, to the Gentile side. These people aren't going to Make him king immediately. This is one of the first missionaries to the Gentiles. No, you go back to your home and tell them what Christ has done for you. You say, I'm not a very good evangelist. This isn't evangelism. This is witnessing. Witnessing is simply saying, I don't know all that happened, but I'll tell you this, this is what Jesus did for me. Sometimes we get the idea of evangelism as going all the way of you know, closing the deal and making a person pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need evangelism, but God has told us to be a witness. What is a witness? It's where you tell everyone else what Jesus has done for you. Go back to your home. It's a good place to start. And tell them what the Lord has done for you. And he went back to the Decapolis. Decapolis means 10 cities. Deca, like decade, 10 polis city. It was a region that was primarily on the east side of the Jordan, almost exclusively Greek, influenced by Alexander the Great, and still the influence was there. Only one city was on the west side of the Jordan. Go back to the Decapolis, to your hometown, and tell them what Christ has done for you. And now a man set free from his bondage Goes all back to his relatives, back to his his old haunts. And they see the difference. The people who know you best will see the difference when Christ has changed your heart. And so that's what the story really is all about. There was an ophthalmologist who, uh, fresh out of college, was trying to start a business in the town where he didn't know anyone. He had no friends, he had no money, he had no patrons. And he was really discouraged. One day he noticed a blind man on the street, looked closely into his eyes and said, I believe I can help you. And the blind man said, I have nothing to pay you with. He said, come with me. So we went down the street to his office. The man looked at his eyes noticed that he could help him with some surgery. The next day performed the surgery and it was successful and the blind man could see. He again said, doctor, I'm a poor man. I don't have a penny to pay you. And the man says, oh, you will pay me. And this is how you're going to do it. Not with money. But I want you to go and tell everyone you see that you were blind and tell them who healed you. (laughs) And the doctor ended up with all kinds of business. Yeah, you don't need to know all the theology that's written in the book. You need to grow deeper in your understanding of it, but this much you know. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was held in the grip of the evil one, but now I've been set free by the grace of God. Go tell other people what Jesus has done. For you. And he can set you free. If he can do it with the worst of these, can he not do it for you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your power on display. Thank you for your mercy and grace. For your empathy and your authority. And your power to heal. Lord, I don't suspect that there's anyone in the same exact condition today in our place of worship like this man. But I do suspect there are many who are greatly influenced by the evil one. They're unwilling to turn to Christ for help. And if they tell you to go away today, you will. But if they come running before you, with a heart that says, heal me, you will. And all authority is given to King Jesus to heal those who are spiritually sick and forgive sin and to give life that never ends. Do that in our midst, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.